Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal team, and we're on the podcast to break down some of the interesting and challenging topics that are in front of employers these days with respect to compliance and benefits. Today, Suzanne, we are gonna jump in with recent events uh, relating to the Supreme Court and a challenge to the ACA. And we have upcoming oral arguments on that case. And we have the recent addition of Amy Coney Barrett on the court sworn in uh, yesterday and today. Uh, So it seems timely to discuss the legal challenge to the ACA. So let's start with a brief introduction of the case, uh, which I know we will unpack in detail, but let's start with the intro, Suzanne. So the case before the Supreme Court is titled California v. Texas, but it was known as Texas v. U.S. in the lower courts. So just know that when you see the differences in the, you know, in the, in the titling of the case. Mm-hmm. It's ongoing litigation, and it challenges the ACA's minimum essential coverage provision, which is known as the individual mandate. And it raises questions about whether the entire ACA is so um, linked to that provision that it must um, stand or fall along with the, the uh, individual mandate itself. Right. So really two primary issues with individual mandate and then severability. But let's start with some background on the individual mandate first. So the individual mandate requires U.S. citizens or most U.S. citizens, I should say, to maintain a minimum level of health insurance coverage. And if they fail to do so, they will pay a financial penalty, which was known as the shared responsibility payment. And that was a payment that was made to the IRS. There were concerns about the constitutionality of the individual mandate. And so that led several states to file a lawsuit. Um, And that eventually reached the Supreme Court in 2012. It was known as the NFIB, which is the National Federation of Independent Businesses, which is a lobbying group, by the way, for small businesses. But it was NFIB versus Sibelius, and it was decided in 2012. Um, A five-member majority in the Supreme Court found that the mandate was constitutional under Congress's power to tax. And Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion and found that it was unconstitutional, however, under the Commerce Clause and the Necessary and Proper Clause. So this is a key um, uh, issue to know about that opinion, was that the taxing power was the only way that it maintained the mandate's viability. So we fast forward now to 2017, And the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act um, was passed. And in that, it had a provision that eliminated the penalty associated with the mandate. So it it shouldn't say eliminated it. It effectively zeroed it out. So it still remained on the books, but the amount of the penalty was zero dollars. And so, of course, that meant that the tax was effectively eliminated. Right. So we have this change in the tax law. And so a group decided to file suit based on that change, essentially saying, well, you don't really have a tax anymore. Right. And that's what upheld this before. So tell us a little bit more about this Texas v. U.S., the new case that was filed. 
So in April 2018, so this is just following the passage of that Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, Texas and 19 other states, as well as two individual plaintiffs, filed a complaint in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. And like you just said, they argued that the individual mandate was now unconstitutional because Congress's power to tax was the only thing that had upheld its constitutionalities previously. And because that no longer applied, the law could no longer stand. So the plaintiffs argued that the rest of the law was inseverable from that provision and therefore must fall. Um, the DOJ actually joined the plaintiffs, which is a bit unusual, and we'll uh, try to dig into that in a bit. But the district court agreed with the plaintiffs and in fact went beyond what the plaintiffs had asked. They held that the individual mandate was unconstitutional and they and that the mandate itself was inseverable for the rest of the ACA and said that the entire ACA could not stand. Again, that was beyond what even the plaintiffs had argued. So that that was very controversial. Right. So you, you can kind of think and some sometimes we describe this as like a Jenga tower, right? You have the individual mandate. The tower itself is the ACA. The individual mandate is one Jenga piece. And when you pull out that one piece, if it's central enough, it causes the rest of the ACA or the rest of the Jenga tower to, to tumble down. Yes, that's exactly what Justice Barrett, who we'll call her now, um, <laughs> said during uh, the confirmation hearings. That's right. Okay. So the district's court's ruling uh, was obviously appealed as it went a little bit beyond even what the plaintiffs asked for um, in overturning the ACA. So what happened next? Well, and, and to be fair, the district court said that they didn't feel they were in the position to decide which provisions of the ACA should remain intact. And so that's really why they said the entire thing should fall, because it wasn't really in their realm of making that decision. But nonetheless, on appeal in December of 2019, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit affirmed the trial court's decision that the mandate was no longer constitutional. Um, because the associated penalty was no no longer, in quotes, produces at least some revenue for the federal government. But instead of deciding whether the rest of the ACA should be struck down with it, it sent the case back to the trial court for additional analysis. So the ACA obviously, you know, remained um, intact while the case is moving through the courts. And so it is still, you know, being implemented as it was originally intended today. Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's where we are from the appellate court it was sent back to the uh, trial court. Okay, and the Supreme Court has now obviously agreed to review this case. But before we move on to the Supreme Court's case, let's discuss the impact of severability. So if the district court's ruling remain, then obviously a, a host of the ACA's provisions would be eliminated, and that would mean protections, the protections for people with pre-existing conditions would be eliminated the subsidies that are associated with the individual market on the exchanges, um, the expanded eligibility for Medicaid, uh, the coverage of, of uh, young adults up to age 26, um, the coverage for preventive care with no patient cost sharing. There's the closing of the donut hole under Medicare's drug benefit and, and just a host of tax increases that will fund all of these initiatives. So obviously it would have wide impact if um, the trial court's decision remained. Right. So this has become a little bit of an interesting discussion now. We've heard a little bit about this in the debates when it comes to maintaining pre-existing conditions and um, and how that relates to this case. But let's get back to the federal government's position in the case, because that uh, you mentioned that 
they took an unusual position there. So tell us a little bit more about that. Right. Well, well, the DOJ, when it gets involved in a case, obviously, it's generally trying to uphold federal law that's been enacted and trying to defend that law. But in this case, they agreed with the plaintiffs that the mandate was no longer constitutional. Um, but their position on severability is what has evolved, I, I should say, or changed. At the trial court level, they argued that only those ACA protections for people with pre-existing should down with the mandate. Uh, and this would include guaranteed issue and the community re rating. I know we used to talk about this a lot when the ACA was passed, but the reason why those two are um, intertwined is because with that community rating and with those guarantee issue provisions, we're asking carriers to enroll individuals without underwriting based on health status. So prior to the ACA, um, a carrier would look at somebody's health status in the individual market and then rate or price their policy based on their health status. Now they are not allowed to do that. And so they've got to take everybody who walks in the door. They can't look at their health status. So obviously that puts the carriers in a risky position. So in order to help spread that risk, they uh, added the individual mandate to have more people in the risk pool and spread that risk for, on, for the benefit of the carriers. So that is why those two provisions are linked together. Um, and that's why this is often brought up when you talk about the individual mandate. Right. OK, but the DOJ's position changed on that on, on appeal, didn't it? Yes, it changed its litigation position by supporting the trial court's decision that the mandate is inseverable from the entire ACA. So not just those pre-existing condition provisions we just talked about, but the entire ACA. Um, and then it raised new arguments about the scope of relief that the court should grant. And it asserted that the federal grant federal government should be enjoined from enforcing provisions that injure plaintiffs. So it pointed to several criminal statutes that were used to prosecute individuals um, as part of the ACA. Okay. So good to understand the DOJ's position there on severability. And that ultimately brings us to the Supreme Court case now. And oral arguments are scheduled for November 10th, which would be two weeks from today. So we have a very busy couple of weeks with the elections next week and then jumping right into oral arguments on this huge case. So what are the issues that are before the Supreme Court this time around? So the Supreme Court has agreed to review four legal questions in the case. So first, the court will consider whether Texas and the plaintiffs have standing to bring the lawsuit to challenge the individual mandate. If so, the court will then uh, determine whether that zeroing out of the tax rendered the individual mandate unconstitutional. And if it is unconstitutional, the court will then decide whether the rest of the ACA can survive. So there's your severability issue. And then finally, if the entire ACA is held invalid, it will resolve whether the entire law should be unenforceable nationwide or whether it should be unenforceable only to the extent that provisions injure the individual plaintiffs. Okay, so lots to unpack there. Let's first talk about uh, the ramifications. And then I want to ask about Amy Coney Barrett's involvement now that she has officially joined the court. Let's start with uh, ramifications from the case. So we just touched on this. We just touched on this, really, but we can expect the Supreme Court's decision to come um, probably in June of 2021. And if they find the individual mandate is unconstitutional and invalidates only that provision, then the practical result is that it's essentially the, the same as the ACA is today without an enforceable 
mandate. But if they adopt the provision that the federal government took during the trial court proceeding and they invalidate the individual mandate as well as the protections for people with pre-existing conditions, then, you know, things like the premium subsidies in the exchanges and the Medicaid expansion and those other provisions that we discussed uh, would remain. Um, and then, of course, the for most far-reaching consequent would occur if they decide that most of the ACA had to be overturned, but most um, prognosticators don't expect that to happen. So I really believe that if they do find it unconstitutional, which there seems to be a good legal argument for that to occur, um, that they will find that uh, certain provisions would be severed along with it, but most of the ACA would remain, would be my guess for what that's worth right i think it's worth a lot suzanne <laughs> i'll pay you for that comment later <laughs> <laughs> okay so the potential um, outcomes there can kind of go across the board or the potential impact right so from um, very little change to quite a bit of change but let's dig into uh the most recent development here with amy coney barrett now um a member of the court here, a justice. And there seems to be quite a bit of discussion about the direction she will take as um, we know now, or many knew before, but she has uh, put out some information previously criticizing Justice Roberts' opinion from 2012. So let's talk a little bit about that. So Barrett wrote a law review back in 2017 um, on the 2012 Supreme Court opinion and uh, it was with four Notre Dame where she's a professor. And if you want to, again, if you want to see an example of an oppressive legal mind, you should pull up this article or this this uh, law review because it's it's impressive for sure. It's titled Countering the Majoritarian Difficulty. And it does um, look at the NFIB versus Sebelius case along with many other cases. Um, but it's she addresses that case by stating that a Democratic majority should not supersede a judge's duty to apply clear text for a judge that adopts an interpretation inconsistent with the text fails to enforce the statute that commanded majority support. And so in this context, she's referring to Chief Justice Roberts construing of the penalty on those without health insurance as a ta tax rather than a penalty in order to save the statute. And as I mentioned earlier, Chief Justice Roberts um, himself found that the penalty was unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause, which would have been the relevant provision for the penalty. But instead, he um, chose to find that it was a tax in order to save it. And as she stated in her confirmation hearings, I'm sure if any of you listened to her, you heard on more than one occasion that she referred to herself, herself as a textualist. And she believes that justices should not rewrite a law that is enacted by Congress. And by Congress, when she refers to the majority, that's what she's referring to. Um, she states, the measure of a court then is in its fidelity to the original public meeting, which serves as a constraint upon judicial decision making. So I don't think that you can read from this that she's opposed to the ACA. She's just a textualist. And she criticized Roberts because she felt like he prioritized purpose over text and that he went out of his way to apply a different meaning to the text. Um, and so, as I said, she's a textualist. So I don't know what you, uh, you know, to me, this is, you know, I find solace in this, knowing that that a justice is not going to distort a statute to achieve whatever outcome he or she would prefer. But I don't know what this means in terms of severability, because the text itself, the statute does not address that issue. 
And so we don't know um, how she would review um, the purpose of the statute in that context. So that will be interesting to see. And uh, we will we will all have to wait and see uh, what that means. We, maybe we can glean some indication if she chooses to ask questions during uh, those oral hearings, but it will be something certainly that we will be tracking. Uh, so this is very interesting insight into uh, Barrett's sort of background and her history as a justice. And this will be a very interesting thing to watch. Any other thoughts as we uh, kind of move forward towards that uh, November 10th start date on the oral arguments? So I think something that's important that sh um, that Justice Barrett also brought up during the confirmation hearings was that um, it's really on Congress's shoulders to draft a law and to have a and to enact a law that stands. And so, what will be interesting is if they view um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that zeroed out the penalty but left the remaining provisions of the ACA as evidence that they intended the ACA to stand. Um, and so, but it is on Congress's shoulders to ensure that those pre-existing condition provisions are remain on the books. And so, I know there's been various bills that have been proposed, and it's important for them to act and make sure that those those protections are in place. Right. So it's a great point to think about. We talk about so much about this Supreme Court decision, but Congress always has a say in it, right? If the if the reasoning is that. The wording is not clear. That is something that Congress can go back and make very clear if they want. And I agree that that uh, 2017 tax law change does leave open the possibility, you know, that argument at least that, you know, Congress had the chance to get rid of the entire ACA. Um, they did get part of uh, rid of the individual mandate. So maybe their intent was to leave the rest in, in place there. So it will be very interesting to watch those arguments and see which of these come, come out. Uh, and when we start hearing questions from Justice Barrett and the other justices, maybe we'll get a better idea of sort of which way they're leaning or what kind of what kinds of things they're looking at specifically when it comes to their decision. So, Suzanne, thank you so much for walking walking us through this. We will keep an eye on this case and we will be covering it, I'm sure, on a future podcast and through our uh, biweekly newsletter, Compliance Corner and provide more analysis on, on uh, this interesting case. So as we like to say on the podcast, though, for now. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us.